0: Welcome, everybody, from around the world. Welcome, everyone, to Commentaries from the Edge. This is Karen Goldberg, and here's what's coming up. It is my great pleasure and honor to invite Dr. Tony Belize to talk with us today and once I give you a little bit of a uh, brief overview of his background, you'll understand why I, the honor, I am so honored to have him here. And thank you very much, Dr. Belize, for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. I very much appreciate it. So Dr. Belize is a psychologist, both working in the public mental health field and in private practice. He was uh, beginning his career as a clinical fellow in psychiatry at the department of psychiatry at Harvard medical school in Boston. And for 14 years at the LA County, Los Angeles, California County mental health department, which is the largest mental health department in the country, in the United States. From 2000 to 2014, he was a deputy director in charge and overseeing the school threat assessment and response teams, which targeted school violence. During that time, he also was performing and uh, organizing trainings around the world in places like Australia, Canada, and Spain, specifically in focusing also on violence, threat, risk assessment. He was deputy director also in charge of special problems unit with the federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies for what was considered persons of concern that is related to threats of violence. Currently, Dr. Belize is instructor at the USC School of Public Policy, Safe Communities Institute. Who would know there is such an institute? And is on the panel of experts for the Los Angeles County Superior Court for mental health diversion and sex offenses. In addition, he is senior advisor at the North American Center for Threat Assessment and Trauma Response And his work is focusing on providing consultations, of course, in public and private places, as well as to the Fortune 500 companies on violence, threat, risk assessment. So I wanted to make sure that that I was able to at least include some of your rich and and fascinating background in the work that you do so that our listeners would get a sense of why we're talking about this particular subject today, which is violence and the threat and assessing for it. And I think particularly, you know, it's an interesting moment, Dr. Belize, that we're talking about this because of the last year, a year like no other with the pandemic, which of course created a whole different kind of situation. But, you know, Maybe we can back up a little bit and you can tell us how you happened to get into this specialty.
1: Well, good afternoon, uh, Karen, and thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I I uh early on, probably going back to high school, I realized that uh, I was fascinated and interested by a very small percentage of the population. And they turned out to be individuals that uh were acutely ill, psychiatrically, um, suicidal or homicidal. And that was the beginning of it. And I initially uh, volunteered and worked at places where uh, there were psychiatric emergency teams or mobile teams that would go to people's homes and evaluate them for dangerousness to sell for others and get them some help. And along the way, it became obvious to me, and this is something that I continue to to touch on and teach is that everyone has a story. Everyone has a personal life story. And for example, I ran the homeless teams for LA County and I would tell my staff, look, you know, think about the people you see on skid row or in an underpass and imagine them that at one point they sat for their graduation class. They had their high school photo. They had their grammar school photo and and maybe even a college degree, and now they're out in the streets. And how did that happen? And, and it goes the same for violence threat risk assessment. Everyone has a story. Everyone got there through a process of evolution. So it's important to get that story. And so because of my interest in that, um, I continue to do that on the violence threat risk assessment field. I uh, have also, and I'm evaluating a couple of people on death row in San Quentin, and it's the same thing. They have stories, and as you develop their stories and you understand their stories, um, on the assessment side, it's helpful to know how they got to where they are, but on the prevention side, it's extremely helpful because that's where you develop safety nets and you find the things that are missing in their life to make them better people. And obviously, at the far end of the spectrum, the people on death row, uh, there there's not much to do for them because of their situation. But it's helpful in terms of understanding how these individuals got to where they were so that you can apply the same prevention measures for people at risk.
0: Well, that's um, a really fascinating approach in the sense that you know, it's you're you're talking about looking at the humanity of each person that you're dealing with, especially I think when you were mentioning about the homeless and in Los Angeles, California, that that's that's something that all of us um need to keep in mind for everyone that we see. Right. And and the fact that we have so many homeless. I, I'm wondering if what you're saying is in, in a sense, um are we all? Do we all have that capacity—the same capacity for violence—in um, the sense that you know we're, we all walk through the same. We all have our stories, but we all have so many, so much in common in, in passing through our life, our life journeys.
1: Yes, and I believe everybody has a capacity for violence, and I have demonstrated it in court. Um, it 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 um, varies from person to person. And it also involves external factors. So for example, if um, everyone in our audience right now had one shot of tequila to celebrate this podcast, we'd probably be okay. But let's say I invited all of you to have 20 shots of tequila in one hour and get your blood levels really saturated. We would act very differently. And some of us might uh, deliberately or by accident, engage in violent acts. So the potential is there. You need triggers, and some triggers are external, like substance abuse, and other triggers are internal, former trauma, uh, revenge, a desire to, uh, to uh, collect all your grievances, uh, fame and recognition. So to the answer to that is, yes, we all have a potential for violence, uh, but it has to be activated. And, and that's the part that you find out what's activating it and you find out what can, uh, we call them protective factors that will mitigate the risk. And you have success nine out of 10 times.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you know, people, when you talk about triggers, um, people around the world look at, at the United States, look at our society, and I think, think of us as you know on the on the spectrum of violence that we we are a particularly high viol- violent society and in and really you know all the, these these last years i would say pre pandemic of course we've really had a lot of national trauma with the with the uh, the kind of mass shootings that we've had what do you think is is going on in our society that there seems at least you know, with pandemic, it's it's interesting that the the coronavirus seems to have put a, uh, a lid on a lot of the violence that has been going on in our society. Um, but what do you think has been happening in our society that that there seems to have been this increase of of the mass shootings by by individual people?
1: Well, you know, I saw the the, the change in the kind of individuals we're, we were seeing back in about. 2003 or so, you know, at that point, I was in charge of all the emergency psychiatric services in L.A. County. And I remember telling my boss, you know, things are changing. And, and I'll give you an example. We had a teacher that wanted to die by suicide, which is, you know, a horrible thing, but, but not unusual in the kind of work that I do. But she wanted to do it in front of her third grade class. Mm. Right, And and, and so it was changing in ways that were unique. And what I have found is that um, there's a universal thing to people that engage in targeted violence. And one is a perception of marginalization. They don't feel they belong, Uh, a failure of surveillance. In other words, no one's watching them, which also means they're not connected to anyone. And then the uh, the use of social media to foster their negative beliefs, or find cohorts of people that endorse violence as a remedy.
0: Yes. So so you're saying, yeah, the technology in in this sense that this is the way the technology has worked to to foster. More, more of that to sort of confirm those feelings you might be having.
1: Right, right.
0: Maybe even to egg you on.
1: Exactly, it promotes. If you're
0: prone to that area. Exactly,
1: and again, it's a small percentage of the population, but much like some of us are driven to use social media for positive things, shopping, uh, the arts, entertainment, education. Others use it to uh, promote violence, to encourage others to engage in violent acts, and to learn from other violent actors.
0: So, you know, it's um, there are people who are listening today, and uh, who are much younger, who actually can't imagine that there was a time in the world, in the in the United States, when uh, there were no guards at supermarkets there, there were no guards at 7-elevens. There were no, uh, there, there was a society in which you didn't expect to see, um, really security at, at schools, right. you know, entrance of schools. So it seems that, that, that in itself shows some type of, of, uh, you know, some fundamental change in our society or in the world, um, Do you think there's something about how complicated the world is that that it's made, it's created more frustrations among certain people?
1: Well, you know, the advances in technology are great for people that are able to get on that train. But some people are even further marginalized by the absence of new tools they can use constructively. In, in 2000, uh, internet use was basically about 5% of the world population, and now it's up to about 60%. So people are connected throughout the world, and they can learn both the good things and the bad things. Uh, with the group that I see, uh, they continue to follow uh, the mass shooters, the notorious killers, and they base their plans oftentimes on what they've learned from others. You know, Columbine happened in 1999, and that was one of the index events for uh, targeted school violence. And, yeah, exactly. and as recently as last year, uh, we uncovered an individual that had developed a plan identical to the Columbine shooters. And in 2018, an individual actually carried out his plan in much the same way as Klebold and Harris did in 1999. And uh, there are even crime scene photos where he uh, died by suicide and fell to be almost in the exact position as mm. one of the, the shooters of Columbine. And so it, it's a, mm-hmm. it, it, you know it touches on many things. One, the amount of time that this individual spent collecting the data, Making the plans and and doing the final act, and so you wonder, how is he connected? Where were where mm-hmm. were his parents? Where was his where were his friends, etc. Mm-hmm. And that's where I came up in two thousand nine with the idea of uh, i-connection and and i-connection is the relationship between isolation and connectivity, and when I refer to isolation. I talk about emotional, uh, psychological, or social isolation. And the way people manage those things sometimes is through the internet. And that's where they're connected, right? And again, with the very small group of people that I focus on, they don't necessarily look for positive support groups or positive things. They find things that sort of feed their sense of being marginalized uh, being less than, and at the same time, the corresponding uh, uh, information on how to rectify that through a violent
0: outcome. So that mimicking, that idea of mimicking, um, is it seems you know really powerful, and you could say really it it you know gets passed down through history. Um, I know you were mentioning some time ago, and I don't know it as well as you do, but the, the 14 words of Adolf Hitler right, right. and how that has become, so if we, if we let's say, fast forward, we're now in 2020, 2020 2021, right. what are, you know, now we're dealing with uh, with a certain kind of violence that's very connected to political violence in a sense, but it's also very individual in the, in the if you want, if we look at like white, white extremists, and of course, what happened on January 6 of 2021, as another example, um, which is not so much individual as it is kind of the group, the group idea, the, the group feeling of conspiracies, and the feeling of um, threats, people that are feel threat, uh, threatened about the future, what, what were those 14 words of Hitler that now seem to be, you know, mimicking? Well, these again? Were,
1: this was actually coined by David Lane, who's a well-known white supremacist. And, and the 14 words are, um, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. And some of the school shooters uh, have referenced uh, Hitler's The Final Solution. Which, which, again, was uh, an effort to exterminate everyone and develop the model society, right? The, the, right, the Aryan, the Aryan race. race. And so, yes.
0: The pure Aryan, pure Aryan right. race. And so there are yes. some people that,
1: that, you know, believe Hitler was right. Mm-hmm. They, they still believe that Hitler was right. And, and uh, this individual comes forward and brings this up and this is what a lot of the uh shooters in the recent past have uh talked about. Dylan Roof who went to the Evangelist Church and and uh, murdered people there said um, you know I had to do something. You know the 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 black community's taken over, right? In in Gilroy, uh the the male that shot up the Hispanic consumers said the 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 Mexicans, the immigrants are taking over the country. We've got to do something about it, right? And so those thoughts, that kind of ideation has been around, you know, I think for a long, long time. But it got a lot of support and, and became quite visible during the Trump administration, right? And, and some would argue even before then with the, uh, the presidency of uh, Obama right? That 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 was a threat. You know, uh, now these people are in the White House. Where's this headed? So so it's uh, and again, uh, you can go to the Internet and find all sorts of hate speech, hate ideology. And if you're vulnerable, uh, you're susceptible to things like that
0: so that yeah and that that seems so you know in a way it's so tragic that it's bubbled up again uh and of course at this particular moment uh when we have a new administration a new 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 point of view there's there's of course hope that 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 those feelings and that that idea of welcoming everybody and making everyone feel that they all everyone has a share right, in, in making uh, a good life for themselves that, that we're sort of, you know, on that path now. Yeah,
1: and you mentioned um, a, good, a key point that we see among individuals that we assess for who are on a pathway to violence. The whole idea of hopelessness and despair. They have no hope. They've given up. And what we try and introduce in terms of intervention, which becomes a protective factor, is a hope for a better way. For example, we hospitalized once a 17-year-old student who had developed a plan and was going to carry out an act of targeted school violence, and he needed more psychiatry than legal criminal intervention. So we hospitalized him. And you can imagine a a 17-year-old going to a psychiatric hospital, right? Well, when we talked to him afterwards, he actually said, you know, that was the best thing that happened to me. He said, I saw all these people there that were a lot sicker than me. And, mm-hmm. and then for the first time, I realized that I wasn't alone. People have problems. I wasn't the only one with problems. And my problems aren't so bad. He says, I feel
0: hopeful now. I know I can make it. Right? That's Yeah, That's well, that was, that's a really positive outcome. Exactly, exactly. That's one of the most positive outcomes you could hope for,
1: right? And that's and that's what we have seen when we, you know, when when we identify and assess these individuals. um, Oftentimes, as I mentioned earlier, people get stuck on the drama. Did you have a gun? Were you going to bring the bomb? You know, and and what I tell staff is back up a little bit and get the story, get the whole story. What drove them to that? What got them there? Because the instant event, obviously, you got to take care of it because you need to have to identify. But that's it. And that,
0: uh, that, that, yes, and that, and I think that that may be that's such a tremendous contribution you've made to understanding how to work with people that are that are uh, threats in this way. And I'm wondering also. You know, you you've had tremendous experience working mm-hmm. with police agencies on the on the federal level, on the state level, certainly, of course, with the Los Angeles Police Departments, and and I guess probably, you know, in the work that you've done uh, internationally, do you h- how do you approach the police departments to under do, do you well? I guess really the question is, do you feel they are getting your message? Uh, Do they do they have training from you that involves this idea of understanding? We know, you know, we talk about um, suicide by police, which has become a more common understanding now. But I'm not sure. And I think, you know, there's there's people in general in society or, or in our communities that are wondering, did the police get that message that there's a story here that there are people who are trying to commit suicide? By well, it, it's, a cha- you know, them. I
1: try and train, I train law enforcement. I train mental health providers and uh, workplace security firms and educators. And whenever possible, I try and train them all together. So let's say, for example, that Pasadena wants a training for their school district on targeted school violence. Well, I will suggest that they also invite their local PD, their local mental health providers, so that they all hear the same thing. Because what you want to develop is situational awareness. And what you want people to do is begin to develop a similar language. Because what happens is, and have some insight, because what happens is that, um, and, and one thing that I mentioned that's important too, is that there isn't a discipline that is necessarily better than another in terms of assessing threats. You know, some people believe that it's got to be the law enforcement officer. And my point to that is, well, what training have they had? Likewise, they feel, well, it's a mental health issue. These guys are crazy. They need mental health. And and again, the same thing. What training does a mental health person have? A license to carry a gun or a license to practice psychology or a teacher and a school administrator. That doesn't give you expertise. And so. The point is, is that when I give the message um, like everything else, some people get it, understand it Um, at the worst end, law enforcement, they see Mm. a situation. They just want to arrest the person on the mental health side. The mental health people see a situation. The guy said he's going to kill 10 people at school. They want to hospitalize the person and the educators hear the same story and they want to expel. And my point to, to them is this, you know, those are three options that can be used to stop the forward motion. But it doesn't solve the problem. If you get arrested and you haven't committed the act, you're released. If you're hospitalized, you're released. Mm-hmm. And likewise, if you're expelled at 13 or 14 yes. or 15, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? So so my point goes back yes. to, look, it's important to understand that. I'm I'm not, you know, let's feel sorry for everybody. It's important to act decisively, to wrap the safety net, not only around the perpetrator, but the targets and the institution. Everybody's got to be safe. But you got to try and re- rehabilitate this kid. You know, because where's he going to go? Right. So, So our goal has always been, exactly. so number one, stop the forward motion. Just stop it. Number two, rehabilitate the student the perpetrator because some of our students are 45 years old and and the third is to develop a support <laughs> system that will help this person function you know and uh and but i'll tell you the the the, the bigger challenges uh people don't understand it they get anxious about it they go back to their uh toolkit and so for law enforcement just arrest them Right. Mm -hmm. And and uh, the mental health people uh, hospitalized. And and, you know, and those are those are okay. That just to me reflects that they need a little bit of training. Right. And they need to realize that the people that we see on target school violence don't have necessarily a history of criminality. You know, and and you hear the story all along. Exactly. Where where the the neighbors say, I would have never thought that Joe would have done that. Right, right, and and it's because so yeah, typical. there was no, there weren't the the kind of warning signs for the larger population, right?
0: So really, you know, I think in relationship to that, one of the most positive things that have come out of this horrendous last year of the pandemic and the tragedies from the coronavirus is, I think, a lot more awareness about the need for mental health services. And I think part of that comes from uh, a horribly shared, shared, I should say, shared feeling of isolation that we all we all had to kind of uh, those who are not prone to being isolated, we had to choose to be isolated. And and beginning to feel what, what does that do to you? How do you, you know, how do you feel about yourself and the world when you're, when you're isolated and different people have had, you know, different, different uh, areas of resiliency in that area and others that have just gone through a sort of a roller coaster of, you know, feeling okay and not feeling okay. And I think that what you're talking about really speaks to needing so much more, Whatever whatever funds, whatever funding, whatever kinds of uh, government budgets are going into mental health, so much more is even needed uh, because there isn't enough to deal with so many people that find themselves in in a situation where, you know, even if you say it's a small percentage, be able to get the kind of ongoing care that's not being locked up in jail or being hospitalized because of course those are only band-aids they're they're just you know yeah the the, the
1: difficulty well you know i think the program and also our special problems unit worked with high-risk individuals that were targeting a celebrity a politician the president of the united states uh or and other people right and and anyways that was also successful uh, along the same model of of using prevention, you know, understanding it, trying to make the right uh, interventions or right systems in place. But you know what happens? Uh, I remember going out on a call with uh, the the local counter terror unit, members of the Secret Service, the FBI, local law enforcement. We're on this call, and a tremendous amount of time, effort, and energy on the intelligence side, on the operational side, the whole thing. And, you know, it dawned on me, God, if if people only knew, if we could tell the story and people only knew what we stopped and how many people and man hours it required, it might be something. But you know what? Mm -hmm. The problem with prevention is when you do it right, no one hears about it.
0: Yes, of course. That's exactly. Because that's a so that's the problem with funding
1: prevention it. programs. Most people want action, you know, and, and, and reaction and prevention are different. After Columbine, all of the law enforcement agencies throughout the country developed an active shooter response, right? How to mitigate quickly. And there's still a lot of money placed on that, a lot of training, a lot of hardware. And that's important. But again, that's after the first shot, and
0: right. Yes. And, and, and but, when the but tragedy for is beginning, reason,
1: that's sexier. Then let's get a, let's get in front of it, and and so you know uh, even the the program at the Department of Mental Health never really got the resources that would have elevated it to a, a, a higher plane because there were competing priorities.
0: Well, maybe it's maybe, you know, we have a lot of new beginnings right now, just just our society beginning to open up and uh, maybe there'll be an an opening to have more education and awareness of prevention being something that, you know, will make life safer, more tranquil for all of us, you know, not not to mention Specific communities or specific people, but I think um, your, you know, Dr. Belize, Tony Belize, your contribution to to this understanding and the, and you know how important it is um, for us to realize this because it's it's really the trauma sometimes happens for all of us when we when we are in a society that has this level of violence, and I really thank you on behalf of so many people and the contribution that you've made to to prevention and to storytelling and I think you know as we're coming to the end of of our conversation here I'm thinking of those very specific individuals that you've talked about Um, and if if you had something to say to families that are noticing uh, a teenager or a young person in their family that often they are these people that are becoming more isolated, more withdrawn. What What would you well, number you want one. To advise them?
1: Um, what we look for most of the time are changes in baseline behavior. What's different? What's objectively different? That's what helps. Uh, and so, when you find a student whose grades have dropped, they have stopped socializing. They're not grooming. They're not showing interest in the things that they previously showed interest in, then it's time to have a conversation with them. And if you're not conversant in that, then you can access all sorts of resources. There are There's stigma about mental health, so that happens. But the school counselor, uh, the pastor, the whole thing, someone that can reach out and have the student talk a little bit. And more importantly, not only talk about it, but realize that, Someone's paying attention. Again, as I mentioned, the, the, the failure of surveillance, right? No one's paying attention. No one's noticing that, that you're not who you once were. That's the biggest thing.
0: And I think what you're mentioning about, yes, the mental health stigma, people feeling, well, um, you know, I don't want to tell anybody what, what they used to call, you know, I'm not going to show my dirty laundry to anybody. Kind of thing. Any problems in our family stay in the family. I think one of the other resources, that uh, in addition to what you mentioned, are people's clergy, because often people don't feel a stigma about Good sitting point. down it, with their clergy person. Exactly. And they feel they feel confident, you know, to, con- to confess something that, that is bothering them and, about and their so child right, or about their family. When we
1: offer the family and the individual an opportunity to talk. Uh, you can see the the release, you know the, the 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 pressure begins to drop when we talk about things. So, you know, talking is is so important, and and the trick is to facilitate that dialogue with someone that will listen and hopefully help out or steer the person in the right direction.
0: Thank you so much, Tony Belize, for. For being with us today. And I think everything you've described means, you know, we still have a long way to go. We have a lot of work to do in our society. And maybe each of us can in our own way can become an advocate for more mental health services and more well mental said, health prevention. Aaron,
1: thank you for inviting me. Totally enjoyed it. Okay. All right. It's been a care. pleasure.
0: Thanks so much.